The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan and I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, it was a pretty interesting week in macro news. While El Salvador is not exactly someplace that comes up in market conversations often, this week it became the first nation to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender and didn't exactly go very smoothly. Also, another major central bank made it clear it's ready to start tapering bond purchases that it's been making to counteract the effects of the pandemic now that the recovery is picking up steam. What does it all mean? We'll get into it with a macro strategist at an investment advisory firm. But first, Vildana, I have to ask, it's back to school week, which means there's a lot of drama in the Regan household uh, with, you know, getting your books in the backpack and having the right outfit and everything. I was trying to figure out what Vildana, a young Vildana was like at back to school time. I'm guessing you were like gung ho to get back to school every September. Yeah, I loved back to school. It was so fun. All the new stuff, you know, all the, your new notebooks and things. All the new grammar you I, would learn. Yes. In, in oh gosh, given. don't get me excited. I figured I should have had you give a pep talk to my daughters. I, I had a feeling you were enthusiastic back to school. H- how was back to school for you when, when you were going to school in the 1880s? Oh, in the 1880s. Oh, my God. Did he catch that zing? <laughs> Jeez. It was, well, you know, it was a one-room schoolhouse, and we had to walk both ways uphill in the snow and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, 1880s. Boy, that hurt. I'm sorry. That hurts. I'm I'm dealing with this now too, Mike. Right? I, mean, I got a teenage son who's you know he's in talk you know tenth uh, grade now. So dealing with all that stuff, same thing. Th- that voice there is Ben Emmons. That's our guest. He's a macro strategist at Medley Global Advisors. Ben, how's back to school going in your household? Well, it's actually smooth. This is more my wife giving me a hard time, but I don't. <laughs> my, my, my son is actually following the instructions. So. <laughs> it's, more t- <laughs> it's more the knuckle sandwich that gets served every day, you know. That's, uh... <laughs> but but I wanted to talk to you about what I mentioned at the opening there, El Salvador. I know you've been watching the El Salvador situation. Um, fascinating to me that we finally have uh, Bitcoin as legal tender, albeit not in a major uh, market or economy. But I think you know it's it's breaking that seal of a government actually accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. Walk us through sort of the implications of it in in your view. I mean, is this a big deal in sort of the evolution of crypto, Um, even though there was kind of a glitchy uh, introduction uh, in El Salvador? How are you thinking about it all? You know, what what does this week mean sort of from the evolution of Bitcoin? It's definitely an important step, Mike, because look, if, if you have a country as small as El Salvador is, and although it doesn't have a major currency and their currency is back to the dollar, it's an economy adopt- adopting Bitcoin in a wider way, like as in 
everything that you want to buy and transact in can be done there in Bitcoin through that Shivo wallet that they created, where they purchased, I believe, something like $40 million of Bitcoin in there. And so obviously there's a limited amount, but okay, it's, it's, it's enough for people to get really comfortable with transacting in something that allows them to be part of this digital revolution and not dealing with a black market, right? Like some of these countries like El Salvador or Argentina and Venezuela will probably go this way too. Yeah, people transact more in the black market. And, 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 and while they're having an official currency rate, that doesn't mean much. So I think the implication of it is, is that other central banks are taking this also serious. And what I noted was just not that long ago, I think just a week or two weeks before El Salvador you know, launched this Bitcoin law, the Central Bank of Australia uh, launched a project with the Central Bank of uh, South Africa, Singapore, and I believe it was Korea, to look at the way of using a digital currency, central bank digital currency, CBDC, and uh, allowed it for international payments, uh, so cross-border payments, really more the institutional version of Bitcoin. And so as that, hap- as that project gets on the way, it's called Project Dunbar, and you have this El Salvador example, I think we're making a big leaps forward here or where we're ultimately going to be in is that although our currency system will not change because that would put an end to our conventional monetary policy as it is, right? You know, that, that will not happen. But the fact that you're going to transition to a digital world where you can settle everything digitally, you can transact everything digitally, can you then imagine that we can actually open the stock market during the weekend? That could be an implication. You know, that sounds big, but that is actually the way because if you can instantly settle money and securities that fast because of the technology, well, yeah, that's a huge leap forward, right, for mankind, as a famous astronaut said. <laughs> ben, Vildana uh, <laughs> just got very excited when you mentioned the stock market open on the weekends. That means she'll get to work on the weekends, which I think is, yeah. is a dream. Well, for I do sometimes cover Bitcoin. Whenever it's really volatile, we do tend to cover it over the weekends as well. But yeah, my eyes did just, for all the listeners, <laughs> sort of get really wide. Uh, but Ben, I do want to ask you, it, it, it used to be um, an argument that a lot of crypto people made about Bitcoin that uh, eventually you're going to start seeing it being used to purchase your morning coffee or your morning breakfast sandwich or whatever, which never really panned out, at, at least not in the US. It's really difficult to 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 do something like that. Depending on how things uh, play out in El Salvador, does that mean potentially that that could be an argument again for why somebody might want to own Bitcoin, where you might be able to use it to transact with your, you know, your everyday needs? Yeah, I think so. Because if people get comfortable with this, uh, with a cryptocurrency, which is volatile, and, you know, the argument was made when El Salvador launched this, that as, as Bitcoin sold off because of the glitch, that people say, okay, so I'm buy- I just bought a pizza that was worth, you know, 50,000 Bitcoin, dollars of Bitcoin, now it's worth 20,000, let's say. That's, uh, that's pretty strange, right? It would not be, uh, you know, very pleasant. But I think it's just like when you had in the past how the banking system was so traditional of just cash going around that has become already digital. I mean, I do most of my payments through my, through my iPhone or an app, most of it. So I think that is the direction we're heading with this. 
as you mentioned, there's a fair bit of regulatory um, oversight that's needed. And, and it's not clear who's going to be the responsible agency to look after crypto. That's, I think, the big issue in, in the United States. Um, the SEC wants to regulate it, but then you have the IRS and then you have the Treasury Department. And then you have maybe the Department of Justice and there's another agency. But I do think that we're, we're not that far away from that reality to have crypto being used for payment. Because last year in the summer, a bit quietly, but the Office of Currency Controller, which is the regulator for commercial banks, uh, did uh, allow banks to accept crypto as a quote-unquote deposit. And so if people had purchased crypto, they could actually uh, deposit it at their, at their bank. Now, I don't know the exact technical specifics of it, but that news item always uh, was in my mind like, okay, so if we're starting with making it possible to be a deposit, then it becomes an anchor, right, for, for using it as a means of payment over time, even though it's still very subject to volatility in markets, subject to technological challenges and the concerns over the technological challenges in fraud and criminal activity that, that obviously here big concerns about politically. They want to make sure that that obviously doesn't happen. So, but I think El Salvador, as small of a country it is, it is one, you know, one sort of step forward of this. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I find it fascinating that no regulators can sort of decide who's in charge of this thing, but I think they should put the Space Force in charge of it, you know? The goal, the goal is always to send these things to the moon. So put the put the space force in charge of regulating it. But Ben, I know you've been doing a lot of um, analysis, sort of looking at relationships between Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and crypto in general with the more traditional uh, asset classes in the market, uh, oil and stocks, uh, meme stocks. I, I think you know you've noticed some kind of correlations and, and relationship. Walk us through what your analysis of that looks like you know wh- how does bitcoin sort of fit in to the traditional asset classes is it influencing the prices of i mean obviously you've got your stocks that are exposed to crypto in some way but it, is it influencing things on a macro level in your opinion well you have to start with that last point that you're making so you know the list of companies that have a, a using bitcoin or crypto or having a more digitalized business has just compounded, has just increased very rapidly. And, you know, that, that does influence the stock market because if you take all those companies together as a market weight and there's direct or indirect exposure to crypto or Bitcoin, then the fluctuation of Bitcoin has become more correlated with the changes in the S&P 500. That's particularly this year has been, that's been the case. That's a big difference from the number of years before. Then, obviously, as we had the uh, more wider adoption, if not recognition, on institutional side, particularly people who manage money institutionally, looking at crypto as this must be another alternative, that plays a big role too. And that's where the regulatory parts of it comes in, come into play when it comes to the SEC and, and, uh, and the Treasury Department. And then you, as you have this sort of correlation between Bitcoin and broader markets positive, right? It's been a positive correlation this year. You may think about then that you can take the steps further of, okay, this could affect different assets, um, not just equities, but it could spill over to other assets. Now, what's interesting with, with, uh, with crypto and, and Ethereum, for example, too, it's obviously 
high energy usage, right? And and one thing that has happened with Ethereum is it got back in significant demand because of the upgrade, London upgrade that happened a few weeks ago. And the fact that, that the non-fungible tokens have exploded in trading. So people are very excited about that, but you need Ethereum for that. Ethereum is, of course, related to the, to the blockchain technology. Ethereum does require a fair bit of energy. And so Ethereum gas prices, as I say, which are you can find online, have jumped. So there's a bit of that relationship too of the physical markets with the space of crypto. So I think it all points to the same direction of, as we were talking in the, in the previous uh, discussion, was you have crypto assets that are becoming part of the investment universe. The transition from what it was like a very esoteric tech technology that was off exchange and very privately managed and traded becomes more wider adopted. And then what you're going to get now is crypto stocks, crypto bonds, crypto futures, which, which exist, Bitcoin futures. And as we move to that ETF, which is, I think, likely to happen at some point, yeah, you get the retail public even more involved, a different retail public than those meme traders that you talk about, which is the link. They've moved from meme stocks to non-fungible tokens recently for some reason. But, you know, the fact that you get then meme stocks, which like MicroStrategy is a company that's considered to be meme stock. Yeah, that's all about Bitcoin, right? MicroStrategy. So there goes those linkages between meme stocks, non-fungible tokens, and Bitcoin, right? So I think it's it, it's just morphing into this larger and larger universe of the relationships between Bitcoin, crypto assets, and, and, and financial assets. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Ben, not to spend too much time on cryptocurrencies, although it is so fun to talk about. And I do have questions about um, the broader market as well. But I want to ask you one more thing. I was looking at one of your notes and you wrote that uh, Bitcoin slide is a necessary means to achieve digitization of financial markets. And I wanted to ask you what you meant by that. And maybe if you, in particular, if you can focus on that Bitcoin slide part of the question. Yeah. So we had now three sell-offs in I call the slide, but a sell-off in, in Bitcoin. And there's all these particular reasons for why that happened. The last one, this was more specifically related to Venezuela. Just I guess a, a market reaction of people being overly excited along Bitcoin and there's a glitch and people get a little scared and it sells off. But the real the way I look at that is to say that volatility that we're experiencing is is indeed this maturing asset right of it should actually be very volatile as it becomes more mature because there's more and more people involved in that space right and there's no surprise that then if something like with this venezuela event which would have not really mattered much at all suddenly becomes very sought out on the web and it leads to volatility of bitcoin even though it didn't need to be that way it was just you know a short glitch in the app <laughs> Shivo wallet, as opposed to anything with where Bitcoin was mined or traded on an exchange or anything like that, right? So 
So I think it's a function of that, that it becomes a, it's maturing and therefore the volatility is, is a necessary means for us to make that further step to this completely digitalized financial markets. Uh, I find amazing that we're already making steps that way. The, the Central Bank of Thailand has issued a bond over blockchain, settled it. And the European Investment Bank, which is the agency in Europe that looks after infrastructure uh, investments, is issuing bonds over blockchain. When you get that type of institutions involved, testing that, that out, this is going to become very quickly mainstream within, I predict, almost will predict, within the next year or so, we're going to have a lot of corporations doing this. Uh, same way, all adopting that technology. But it cannot come along with, with more volatility as more and more people are getting involved in it, right? And that's, I think, where I'm coming from. Yeah, ben, I wanted to switch gears a little bit uh, to another topic I know you've been watching closely. That was uh, Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank this week. I feel like she pulled a bit of a Jedi mind trick by basically announcing tapering and then saying, no, I'm not tapering, you know. Uh, but, you know, given the negative yields in Europe and the, the case is always made whenever the question is, well, who's buying U.S. treasuries at the, these yields? The, the argument is, well, have you seen the yields in Europe? Um, you know, how big of a deal is the ECB sort of taking the foot off the gas a little bit uh, with their emergency pandemic program? I mean, is this, it doesn't seem like it's caught anyone by surprise in the markets. Uh, you know, the, the euro was kind of mixed against most currencies. I didn't see any sort of dramatic moves, but is, how are you thinking about uh, this announcement from Lagarde this week? Is it, you know, changed the, the calculus at all, thinking about, um, you know, bond markets going forward for the rest of the year? Yeah, it could be, Mike, because I, I think, like, so she says, uh, you know, the lady can't, they can't taper, right, or it was, isn't tapering, which is that, that, that reference to um, uh, Margaret Thatcher's speech. But in the, in the essence, they are, right? Whatever you call slowing down those purchases in any sort of way, it ultimately is tapering. But the market, you know, the bond market in Europe rallied on this because, you know, whatever they are slowing down the pace with, it still covers a fair bit of issuance well into next year. And that's just, I think, the reason why there was a bit of a relief. Yeah. But it's almost the, all of Italy's issuance, right? And yeah, fair, fair bit of. But here's the interesting change that's going to happen um, is the ECB is, is very smart running two programs at the same time, right? They have this emergency program called PAP, and they have this QE program. It's called APP. And that QE program will come back in a more meaningful way as the PEP program winds down. And they, she talked about that uh, extensively. But the importance for the bond market is that under that PEP program, we really are addressing the pandemic and we're going to buy large volumes as much as we can to keep markets really, really loose in financial conditions and everything functioning well till that pandemic really is weighing off. It's the first step for the ECB to acknowledge that the pandemic is in their mind, slowly changing, right? It is waning. And they made a point about it that they hit the 70% vaccination, which is a key metric to the ECB. So there's that change happening. Plus, they're going to make the APP, the normal QE program, a more important part of their, their um, toolkit. And the reason why that matters is because that program is designed to bring inflation back to the target and keep it to the target. And that program is really the guidance on that is about interest rate hikes in the future once you succeed by bringing inflation back to the target. So my view on this is that, yes, we got this nice rally on this PEP, you know, okay, slowly adjusting 
issuance still covered, but on the APP, the issuance, issuance of bonds is not much covered. It doesn't need to be an 80 billion program, probably much smaller, maybe 40, maybe 30 billion. So that will put pressure on yields in the future. Plus, it's really designed to bring inflation back, which the market does know, like once you get there, the rate hike, so to speak, will be coming into the horizon. And, and that's, that's, I think, what's going to play from here now. Now, why does this matter even further is that Eurozone government bonds, as you say, are negative yielding, the majority of it. So you have this negative yielding bond index that you can look up on Bloomberg. That was something like, I think, 16, 17 trillion recently, and it's fallen by about a few trillion. Because yes, bond yields and French government bond yields and all those have all moved up a little bit higher. I think it's going to continue that way, which means that the deflationary expectations in those bond prices in Europe are really moving away. As the ECB is succeeding with this strategy of managing the pandemic, then bringing that new, that old QE program back to life, again, inflation to the target. Some people may be sounding like, wow, this, that's uh, pretty ambitious, Ben, because that's never going to happen in Europe. But I think that they have some window here to succeed with that. So I think negative yields in Europe will somewhat disappear, not entirely, but will somewhat, even though the ECB will keep buying bonds. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I appreciate that, Ben. You know, Vildana gets bored with the ECB talk. Yeah. She wants to talk about stonks with, with an N. Stonks, right? Vildana? Right, right. I'm not going to use that word, but I did want to bring us back to the domestic, uh, the, the U.S. stock market, because something that we were looking at this week is strength in tech, in particular, the big cap tech stocks. And we found that about 50% of S&P 500 stocks are down 10% since May. And that's true of 90% of Russell 2000 stocks. So what does that tell us about tech strength and why investors might be treating big tech as safe havens right now? And is it at all tied to some of the worries that people have about COVID and the Delta variant? It's certainly with that, that there's, there's uncertainty about Delta variant. And it, that really because of the delay of going back to office is made to stay at home trade, so to speak, you know, again, you know, flaring up in, 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 in value, right? I Meaning it's, it's becoming popular again and tech plays a big role in that. But I think it's also to do with that this defensive uh, nature of the market goes further than tech. And that's that 50-50 portfolio. I'm jumping maybe to a topic that we wanted to discuss, but this 50-50 idea that I was looking at was that you have industrial staples and you know this type of even utilities, and that includes tech, considerably defensive. Some of those have actually lacked tech, even though the defensive sectors. And at the same time, you have the offensive side of the market, retail, some of the reopening sectors that are still much value in there, let's say airlines as an example, 
And so I thought about this 50-50 portfolio of those combined and tracking that against the tech sector. And it actually, interestingly, how the 50-50 portfolio is performing better now than tech. And you can also see this from the relative value between tech and, um, and say, industrials. So industrials have been really strong because of the pandemic and all the production is needed and all the pipeline pressures, sorry, supply chain, supply chain pressures that we have. But if you take the relative ratio between tech and industrials, that's now a lot lower than it was during the major disruption phases in January or, or last year, when really tech was hugely outperforming. So there is strength in tech, but it's not as strong anymore, I think, if you compare it to industrials than it has been before. At the same time, the market, to your point, is defensive or getting more defensive, which is, I think, also now the debate in the market. You had, interestingly, B of A, who were really bearish on the market, have upgraded their and year and target, but are still bearish. You have another, Morgan Stanley, who are much more bullish and they have kind of become more cautious. I think that speaks to this market, ready to have some sort of a correction again. And tech therefore plays this defensive role. I know this is an easy position to be in if you do get this drawdown, so to speak. But I would say, though, this, that as a last point, the drawdown ultimately will really happen, I think, because of the economy shifting again from what we had a bit of a, of a delta impact over the last number of months or weeks. Becoming again more visible that that's going to wane because that wave will, uh, taper off, will taper off. And then the tapering from the Fed comes into play, plus the budget resolution that is being negotiated is a big pressure to get that really through. So there's plenty of that fundamental reason to see a drawdown in the market, which then would make tech, I think, a bit vulnerable ultimately, right? The large caps will underperform. So tech is in demand because of defense, but I think there's come a moment that this drawdown in the markets is upon us again, as all these opinions are getting converging to one another and everybody's getting cautious. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about that, Ben. I think in one note, correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned that one possible catalyst for a drawdown could be sort of a re renewed rotation into Europe or, or other parts of the world. And, you know, it, how are you thinking about that relative value globally? I mean, if we, um, especially here in the US, you know, obviously we're, we're kind of plateauing out on vaccines. But, you know, we, we seem to have this hesitancy uh, to vaccination that parts of Europe and in the rest of the world don't quite have. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, it doesn't look like this three and a half trillion dollar budget plan from Biden is is going to pass without some some cuts to it. We've got the that dreaded uh, uh, debt ceiling uh, approaching again and the, the famous extraordinary measures and all that. Is it a time to start looking outside of the U.S. and start looking overseas, do you think? You could use it as an argument, uh, Mike, because um, if we had some relative underperformance of Asian markets to the U.S. because Asia was the first region to come out of the pandemic without much pain, but it was also the region where the vaccinations were really slow in the first phase. Now they're picking up really rapidly, right? And, and that's not just in Singapore, it's happening also in, in, in even markets like Hong Kong, where there was huge hesitancy about vaccinations. And Japan now too has picked up really quickly. So Asia is getting... In that respect, a bit in a better position, if you think about this rotation trade, which is really a momentum trade right? that, that has been playing the entire pandemic. Each time 
one area underperforms another area and there's progress made in the pandemic in one way or the other, right? whether the, the, the lockdowns end or vaccinations increase, the money flows to that, under, that relative underperforming area. In this case now, it's, it's Asia-Pacific area. Think of Singapore, think of Hong Kong, think of New Zealand, think of Japan. And yeah, if you look at a, at a graph where you normalize those ETFs versus the, the SPY ETF, yeah, there's a gap, right? And I think it will not entirely close that gap, but it will definitely be a catch up here, really playing on, on again, this reopening cyclical momentum idea that we've been into in since, say, April of last year, when we, you know, come out of the depth of the pandemic, of the, of the worst of the pandemic. Europe, on the other hand, is now a little bit in a phase of that. Yes, the ECB is, in my view, tapering. The lady can taper, right? So it is happening. <laughs> and, uh, and you can kind of tell, right? It's, it starts like way, way on the markets there. They're, they're down more month to date so far since all that hawkish language came out. And now today we get the news than, than US markets or Asian markets. So, so I do think that the Europe probably, despite its success with vaccination rates, will deal now with more the, the, the policy changing to a degree. So that's an interesting aspect of, of the global macro landscape too, right? Because if you look at Asia Pacific, New Zealand and Korea, for example, they booked success against the virus and they now seen their bond yields normalized towards 2% on the 10 year. So it does show that when you get that virus better under control, that interest rates can depart from the virus influence on the pandemic, right? That's an important uh, uh, observation. And the second one is, is Europe that you made a huge progress with all this vaccination. Uh, you're getting the situation there also better under control. Now you can focus on adjusting policy and that will affect markets negatively in, in equities there, right? So I think if we look at both examples, I think the opportunities in Asia Pacific equities, they have lagged the US and you know the, uh, there's progress in the pandemic there, but that also means yields normalizing. So there is that risk on trade. Whereas in Europe is a bit of the opposite way, you get a bit of traction, the traction on equities. We are in the US not at that, in, in, in that situation just yet, right? The yields of treasuries are kind of range bound and boxed in, and so is the S&P. So I do think we're going to go to that scenario. Uh, I mean, I would expect us that we will get to a point where yields are going to be reflecting more of a normal economy that is not so much anymore in the influence of the pandemic uh, as tapering then gets on the way. Tighten up your straitjackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Now, Voltan, as you know, Ben is no stranger to this podcast. It's not his first time at the rodeo. So I know he came prepared with a crazy thing for us, Ben. Let's have it. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? So, you know, uh, you know, a bit from history, too, that I know I had once Twitter account a while back and it got hacked and all kinds of funky stuff happened. So, but these days I'm a little bit on there again. I, you know, I watch all the celebrities on there and I see Fildana tweeting and Bloomberg tweeting. And then all of a sudden one evening I see this, this, this tweet coming out of a guy laying with two hairy legs on the beach, you know, and, and, but the interesting thing is that those legs were just, you know, the lower legs were actually looked like shaved, but the rest of it was pretty hairy. It turned out to be you. And I thought like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> were you at the Jersey Shore? That was Shore? me at the beach. That was me at the Jersey Shore, yes. Yes. I do not shave the upper parts of the legs. That's just, uh, that's just my natural uh, uh, 
receding hairline, I guess, of, of the yeah, legs. Yeah. That, that That's have. why you should stay off Twitter, Ben. Yeah. That's reason enough. That's right. Stay away. <laughs> I was hacked too, Ben. Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. No, I was that, Those are my legs. I'm proud of those legs. All right, Fultana, that's a that's a good one. I don't know. Could could you beat my hairy legs? Well, I was just going to go with uh, something that happened to me, which is I was reporting on Bitcoin earlier this week, and I was in the midst of talking to somebody about why Bitcoin could potentially hit fifty one thousand and then go above that this week. We were just looking at some technical signals, and while we were talking, it started dropping and. That's my weirdest thing for for this week. It's just the speed with which Bitcoin fell. I, I think it was on Tuesday, Tuesday morning, New York time. It went from down 10%, down 12, down 15. I looked up, I have this little screen on my Bloomberg terminal. It was down 17%. And I, I literally couldn't believe it. <laughs> we were just talking about it potentially going higher and just the speed with which it fell. It was, it was something. That's when you quickly say, "Well, where's the support then?" If that <laughs> right, yeah. And then I was, I was chatting. Change with, the topic. <laughs> I was chatting with people. I was like, "What just happened?" And everybody was like, "I have no idea, but this is normal <laughs> for Bitcoin." Well, to your point, yeah, it looked more like a Saturday night special for Bitcoin than right. uh, you know than than uh, what you see at the the opening of the week. That's a good one, Vildana. I'm going to give you mine. Mine's courtesy of uh, uh, a story in CoinDesk via the Matt Levine uh, excellent Money Stuff newsletter. Now, it kind of feels like cheating to talk about NFTs and the crazy things uh, because the whole concept is crazy, in my opinion. But this one is especially crazy um, because, okay, there was, and it co- combines the other craziest thing of our lifetime, which is Dogecoin. So the image of the original Shiba Inu dog that Dogecoin is based on. It's a meme. I'm, uh, hopefully people know what I'm talking about, but it was a, a meme with a dog and that, that's what Dogecoin was created around. That was turned into an NFT, that image. It sold for about $4 million uh, a few months ago, three months ago. Now here's where it gets crazy. So someone, whoever bought it decided, okay, I'm going to carve this up and offer fractional shares of this NFT. Um, 17 billion tokens uh, were created by, by cutting up this NFT. 20% of, of them sold to one buyer, and it's time to play prices right. All right, all right, Ben, if I, were to, if I were to buy a $4 million NFT, what would you expect someone to pay for 20% of that $4 million NFT? Yeah, well, that would be 800,000. Is that right? Uh... It would be eight hundred thousand dollars. Eight hundred thousand, yeah. That's good, quick math there. I put you on the spot there, but yeah. Yeah, but it looked like yeah, but but it, it you know the twenty percent of four million is not eight hundred thousand, right? It maybe be more two million, right? Like as in twenty percent is can be doubled easily simply because it's such a unique artifact that, that you own on that blockchain, no one else can until those that, that, that changes. So in other words, it's not transaction. There's no there's no commoditized market here. That's for sure. Yep, yep. You're in the right direction. $45 million for 20% of an NFT that originally sold a few months ago for $4 million. So I guess the, the idea is that you break this thing up. I don't know. I, 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 trying to guess what the idea is for, for any of this is crazy. But I guess that notion of fractionalizing it and breaking it up, 
you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't wrap my head around this. As, as Levine said, it's all a big joke. And, uh, you know, the original joke was it's selling for four million. And then it's an even better joke that 20 percent of it sells for, for 45 million. But well, the, you uh, know, the, the, the topic that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about was was why Bill Gross had suddenly an interest in these NFTs. When yeah, tell, a little, tell me uh, about that. Now, now, uh, listeners don't know. Ben used to work at Pimco back in the Bill Gross era. He was uh, it was a credit fund you you uh, managed, right? A, a global funds, yeah, but also yeah. On, also yeah involved in his fund, total return. Yeah, yeah. So you know, but you know, Bill's history is also with artifacts. Is his post stamp collection, right? He had a huge collection, a very unique post stamp. So again, same idea. He was the only one owning that. And unless he sold them, which he did, but right? he sold a part of it for, for charity. I think that's why he was interested in the NFT concept. But the interesting thing I found from his opt-out was that he, you know, he was complaining a lot about, okay, we're now really too low with interest rates. I already told you 10 years ago that rates were too low, or even lower. And gosh, we're going to do here. Don't sit in bond funds. You know, think about NFTs. And I almost wanted to say, like, well, that's your diversification, right? If, if you think about, if you're worried about inflation, if you worry about low interest rates or real interest rates being so negative, then an NFT probably is, a, is another sort of form of a hedge against your dislocated bond uh, market, so to speak. Because if bonds have a risk reward that's so asymmetric, you have more downside than upside in, in the current situation, even much worse than when he ranted about it 10 years ago, when he also said that it was a, a really poor time for treasuries, then an NFT could make an, a, a, a difference. And the returns in NFTs are so gigantic, right? That that would compensate you so much for any kind of inflation shock. That was sort of, I think, where, where he was coming from. But, you know, at the end of the day, a mutual fund, a, you know, 40 act mutual fund, so to speak, you know, is unlikely to purchase NFTs. <laughs> They're not going to be calling him the NFT king anytime soon, I, I suppose. <laughs> not likely, no. But 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 both, even though he, you know, during the time that he managed that fund, yeah, he was an advent uh, post stamp collector, right? And and he was very known in that world, which is you know completely outside of the financial markets world, right? So yeah. like like NFTs. That's a good comparison because you know what is the intrinsic value of that little piece of paper that a stamp's printed on? You know, the, nothing. And, no, you know, but it's. It, it's the the value is what someone's willing to pay for it. So I, I it kind of makes sense to think of NFTs in that perspective, I guess. Yeah, collectors item, you know, and, and people wanna hold it and it's therefore an emotional value, I guess, but it's a collector's item. So no one else has it but you. You just really have this really unique artifact, and therefore it's worth a lot more intrinsically than uh, than than what the physical value of it is. Right? Vildana, should I make an NFT of my dog? Do you think anyone would you buy You should that? try it, definitely. Might as well yeah, try. why it's not? Time to this try. is the time, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of the time, I think that is all the time we have for today. Ben Emmons, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, been on the podcast many times. Listeners, if you want to hear Ben's takes on other things, you got to scroll through a few uh, months worth of episodes, but he's been on a few times and we always uh, appreciate his time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for that. It's great to be here. Great discussion. Thanks, Ben. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. 
Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.